Vision Sunday, what we're going to do is we jump into the passage of Scripture we're going to look at, is we're going to do a message called Right Place, Right Time. And we're going to talk about how God has you at the exact right place, the exact right time. He's got our church at the exact right place, at the exact right time, because he wants to use you to then take the next step in your faith journey. And so that's going to be the challenge to you today. And I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to open up the Scriptures together. So let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the time that we've been able to worship through fellowship, through song, uh, through the testimony that we've even seen. And I, I pray as we open up your word, God, that we would worship you as we see your truth and who you are and your character come out. And I pray we would have an encounter with you, that we would see you accurately and that we would respond appropriately. And for some of us, that response will be repentance as you reveal sin. And for some of us, it'll be just recovery or restoration, reconciliation as you show us your encouragement, your love, your grace, your power, your mercy. For some today, I pray would be the day of salvation. For others of us, I pray it would be the next step in our faith journey. We've already trusted you, but now you're calling us to the next step. And I pray you'd reveal that to us supernaturally. I won't even say the words for every person and the thing you want them to do. But will you supernaturally, by the power of your spirit, speak into our hearts. Use your word and your spirit and speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We've probably heard that phrase before, right place, right time. And usually when you hear someone say it, they're talking about good luck, or I was fortunate to be at the spot that I was at in that moment. Maybe some of you went to a Durham Bulls game this year, the season I heard just wrapped up this past week, but maybe you're at a Durham Bulls game and a foul ball comes and you, gra- you reach out and you grab it and you got a souvenir ball. Maybe you stopped it from you know, hitting the beautiful lady next to you or your kid or something like that. Right place, right time. <laughs> just lucky, right? Or maybe some of you today will leave here from this service, and as you're leaving, someone will text message you and say, hey, can you pick up some milk? Isn't it, why is it always milk that we run out of? And you go over to Harris Teeter grocery store that's right around the corner. And while you're there, then you get like two more text messages. And can you get some butter? And can you get some basil? That's how my text messages go. And then I, I don't know how to find anything here. Like, why do they hide it? And I go through, and then you're checking out, and you're using your Vic card because you're over at Harris Teeter. And as soon as you scan your Vic card, balloons fall from the ceiling, confetti starts to fly, the manager comes running out, you're the millionth shopper at this grocery store, free groceries for a year. Right place, right time. And we just think it's good luck. It's fortunate, if you don't believe in luck, that you are at the right place at the right time. And then we see other things happen in life. There's people that you think, wrong place, wrong time. People that get struck by lightning. I read about a guy, a young kid actually, who's been in two plane crashes, both, both times his dad was piloting the plane. Oh, wrong place, wrong time. I read this week about a family that was in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. When the earthquake took place, I think it was in 2010, they moved to Chile. A month later, another earthquake happened, 8.8 magnitude. And you'd say, well, wrong place, wrong time, bad luck. Today what we're going to talk about is that you're always in the right place at the right time because God is divinely working, ruling, orchestrating, and even when you're sinning, overruling in your life to have you at the exact right place at the exact right time. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in the book of Esther. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there now. It's not the easiest book to find. It's in the Old Testament just before, uh, right between Nehemiah and Job. So kind of towards the middle of the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, the book of Esther. We're going to jump in in chapter 4 in verses 14 and 16. But we're going to have to look at more than just that because those are really the climactic verses in that passage of Scripture. And as I was doing some research about right place, right time this week, there was one story that I came across that has to be the ultimate right place, right time story there was this couple in Burbank, California, and they were moving out of their apartment. Their names are Conrad and Jennifer Leitner, and as they were coming out of their apartment, they saw some kids up on the third floor, 
They were throwing toys out the window, which they didn't think anything of it the first time they saw it. They went back in to get another load and they came out until they saw a three-year-old boy stick his leg out the window and begin to climb out of that third-story window. And they couldn't stop the kid from coming out and they saw him out, you know, starting to do this. He fell, but there was a cable that was right there that caught him partway down. And then they just happened to be carrying the box spring for their mattress. And so they ran over underneath this little boy, threw the box spring down. The wife called 911. The husband held his arms out. The kid fell. As the kid was falling, he grabbed him, put him right down in the box spring. The kid ended up being okay. And afterwards, the Conrad, Conrad and Jennifer, they were interviewed. And I watched the local newscast interview they did with him. And Jennifer said, you know, later in the day, we started moving other stuff. We just kept looking at each other going, that really, can you believe that? That really happened. And then Conrad said, I'm not a hero, which is what every good hero says, right? <laughs> I'm not a hero. So I was just someplace and something happened. Let me paraphrase that. Right place, right time. But what was really interesting to me was as I watched this interview that they did on the local news, is that the newscaster ended up saying that as they were talking to this couple, the couple said earlier that day they got trapped in the elevator of their apartment for 30 minutes before they got set free. And they said, had we not gotten trapped earlier in the day for 30 minutes, we wouldn't have been there at that moment and we wouldn't have been carrying out those items. See, what they don't realize is that God had them at that exact moment, at that exact time. And so I want to share with you, today being our Vision Sunday, I believe God's got us as, as a church right at this place at this time. I believe he's got you, regardless of what your story is up until this moment, at the exact place, at this exact time. And it's not me just saying that. The Bible says it very clearly. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, not the passage we're going to look at today, but I want you to know it's said all throughout the Bible. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, from one man, he made every nation of men, he being God, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he, God, determined the times, the exact moment, the exact second you would be born. In human history, of all the times you could have lived, he's got you here now. And the exact places where they should live. Not Dubai, not China, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. At this exact moment. Why? If you have your Bible, go to Esther. Esther chapter 4 we're going to look at. Like I said, it's two of the climactic verses. Verses 14 and 16. I'll read a little bit more than that so you get the context. And really you've got to understand the book as a whole. And sometimes the way that Esther's told is this rag to riches, Disney story about this girl. She was an orphan, and she's Jewish, and so that's not the right race for her to become a queen in this situation. And she becomes a queen. It's like, whoa! And all the little girls carried their wands. The Bible tells a little bit different version than what some of you have heard before. And so if you go back through and you can read on your own, I'll tell you a great book to look at if you want to know more about Esther. Chuck Swindoll's written a book to kind of go alongside it. There'd be a great book that makes a lot of practical applications. It was helpful for me in preparing this message. But in chapter one, it starts off as kind of boring. It's just this dude's ruling, and he's a king. His name's Xerxes or Hasieras, as you start to read it. Uh, depending on which version you're reading, I'll tell you the different names. And let me tell you what you need to know from chapter one. Xerxes did not struggle with self-confidence. Xerxes is a king that he wants to show off his wealth. And so what happens in chapter one is he throws a banquet that lasts for six months. Like, think about that for a second. Hey, I'm having a party. Come on over. And it goes for 180 days. And all the royals and all the nobles can come and he feeds them everything they want to eat. They can drink everything they want to drink. And what he's doing is he's showing off his wealth. He's showing off his success. I'm pretty confident if Xerxes lived today and he had a jet, it would say Xerxes 
on the side of the jet. And every time he gave a speech, he'd have the jet parked in the background. And he'd probably have Xerxes Tower. You get what I'm saying with this? Xerxes was saying, look at all my money. Look at all my success. You can trust me. I must be a good leader. And he does this for six months. And all the who's who of all the provinces he rules over, they come. All the nobles and all the royals. And then the six months is over with. And he says, you know what? Let's just open it up to everybody. Everybody can come. And he continues the banquet on. But there's one person who doesn't come. And the person who doesn't come is Queen Vashti, his wife. And he wants Vashti to come because, well, frankly, because she's beautiful. And he wants everyone to see, I got a hot wife. So if I got a hot wife, I must be pretty impressive. (laughs) Are the parallels uncanny? (laughs) I don't make this stuff up. It's just happening. (laughs) But Queen Vashti, she's got a mind of her own. And she doesn't want to just be exploited for her looks. And so she tells the king, no. Well, in that time, you don't tell the king no. And so the king's guys, they gather around with them and they say, hey, you can't have your wife telling you no, especially not in public. If your wife tells you no, then our wives are going to tell us no, and then all the wives are going to start telling their husbands no. So here's what you need to do. You need to dethrone Vashti. Well, he's this guy, I mean, I told you that he doesn't struggle with ego. Archaeologists have unearthed some things he wrote about himself. He called himself the great king, the king of kings. Ooh. The king of the lands occupied by many races, the king of this great earth. He wasn't going to let somebody tell him no. So he kicks Vashti off the throne. That's chapter one. Chapter two, there's some time that happens between chapter one and chapter two. The king gets lonely and he wants another wife. And some of his buddies, you can tell he doesn't have great counsel. It's important to have good counsel in your life. He doesn't have great counsel with them, but they come up with this idea that what egotistical guy would say no to? He says, hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you have in all the provinces that you rule over, why don't you have them bring their most beautiful virgin, the most beautiful available woman that they have? Josephus says that it may have been as many as 400 women. And we'll have them all come into a harem together, and then you get to pick the most beautiful one. I love John Ortberg preaches a sermon through this uh, series through this whole book, and when I was listening to him, I loved his observation. He said, what society thinks that, it, that you could possibly come up with a good relationship by having a whole bunch of beautiful women gathered together, living together, in the same setting, competing with one another for one man, and that turned into a good relationship? Those of you who don't know why other people are laughing, it's called The Bachelor. But they did it then too. It's like their parallels of our society are so parallel. And what happens in chapter two is we meet this woman named Esther. She's the only woman in the book that has two names, by the way. She comes into our identity later. Esther is an orphan. She's a Jew. She's adopted by her cousin, Mordecai. Mordecai ends up being a hero in this book, but when you look at this book accurately, Mordecai is the one who tells her, deny your faith. Go sleep with a man who's not your husband. Then you'll be able to be the queen. So that's not oftentimes what we hear in Sunday school. It's really a scandal what happens in this book. And they're really not pillars of the faith, but every hero we see in the Bible has flaws, which is important for all of us to know. Because God wants to use all of us. And what happens for Esther is that she wins the beauty contest. She becomes queen. At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai uncovers an assassination plot. Believe it or not, there are people that don't like Xerxes. <laughs> they want to kill him. And Mordecai uncovers this. And, and he, he doesn't get rewarded for it, but his name gets written down as the one who uncovered this. And in chapter 3, there's another guy who gets promoted to second in command. His name is Haman. Haman's a hater. He's like Hitler before Hitler. 
He wants the Jews annihilated. He wants them wiped out. He's powerful and he's proud and he's a racist. And because he wants the Jews wiped out, he convinces Xerxes to do so. Xerxes sends an edict. In 12 months, all the Jews will be wiped out. And that's what's happened in chapter 3. And in chapter 4, people are in mourning because there's basically a terrorist attack that's happening on their soil. They've been brought together with this. And Mordecai is saying he hasn't spoken to Esther for some time now. She's been queen for about five years at this point. And they start to have a conversation. And Mordecai says, you've got to go say something to the king. And, and Esther says back, I can't. I'll be killed. And then we jump in in verse 12. I'll read to you. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Now get this. What he's saying here is, God doesn't need you, but he chooses to use you. You have an opportunity here. But you and your father's family, if you make a bad decision, there are consequences. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? Who knows? And he's even saying here, he's living this. And so we can look back and we can see, oh, we know. But he's saying, I don't even know. But who knows that you've come to a royal position for such a time as this? It's like Acts chapter 17. God's determined your exact time and your exact place. Who knows that God has you in this moment? He does. At the right place, at the right time, for such a time as this. And here's the truth I want you to get today is this. That God has prepared each of us, you, me, all of us. God has prepared each of us, the right place, the exact time, the exact place. Right here, right now. Your story, all of us have different stories. Some of you in the video out in the cafeteria, you got a story. Some of you sitting right here, you got a story. You got a story. You got a story. I've got a story. God's brought you to the exact time, the exact place for this very moment. How you got here, he even orchestrated that. Even the bad decisions you've made. And what we see with Esther is that God's brought her here. And some of her worst decisions, he's used to bring her to her finest moment. You think about where we're at as a church. And today, being Vision Sunday, I'm supposed to share with you where we've been as a church and where we, I believe we're headed. And I laugh to think to myself that I could tell you, like, here's what's going to happen next. <laughs> because I look out and I think, well, what's the vision? The vision is y'all, by the way. That's you, plural, for those of you who are from the north. It's all the people that are here whose lives have been changed at this church. That's the vision. So if you want to hear the vision of our church and you're new to our church, here's what I encourage you to do. After the service, go out in the cafeteria, hang out out there, grab some water, talk to some people, and ask somebody, how long have you been going to church here? If they say more than a couple weeks, say, how has God changed your life here at this church? Because God's reconciled marriages, he's broken addictions, he's saved people. Some of you were here, those of you who didn't know this is our, not our first week together. Some of you were at the movie theater our last week that we were together on August 21st. And I said to the church, I said, if you trusted Christ to this church, stand up. People stood up. That's seeing the vision. I said, if you were baptized here, stand up. People stood up. If, you, if God changed your life in some way, stand up. People stood up. And people stand up all over the place. And I, and I think back to when I was dreaming of a church where we wouldn't be about church. Like we wouldn't be about going through religious rituals. And, and people that had been burned by the church would come back to church. And people who didn't know Jesus would come to Jesus. And all those things would happen. That people would be connected to Jesus and their life would be transformed. And I was in Dallas, Texas, dreaming about that. I didn't know any of y'all. But he was doing that. And I remember one of the questions I asked that day was, how far do you drive? And you'd stand up, whoever drives the furthest. And if you were in the second service, and some of you might have been in the second service, you might remember there were multiple people that were kind of tied in, in what time frame they had driven. And we were giving out some prizes. We ran out of prizes. We weren't just cheap with them, just so you know. 
uh, via social media. We were able to find out who some of those people were. And I wrote them a little note, said, hey, thanks so much for driving so far. We sent them uh, the, the gifts that we gave out that day. And one of the people wrote back, and they said, you know, you know why we drive? And they started talking about God doing a work. And then they had a tagline at the end of their email. The lady that was writing the email said, we always tell our friends, so they drive about 45 minutes to get to church. So we tell our friends, a church that is alive is worth the drive. <laughs> ah, good tagline. And we put her on our marketing team. Yeah, we can get a hand. Here's what I know. Here's what I know is true. That God's alive and he's at work. He's been changing lives. I believe he's going to continue to change lives. How he's going to do it, I don't have any idea. And so we had that guest worship leader today, Justin, Justin and I and his wife, Latisse and Shanna, and uh, Pastor John and his wife went out to dinner last night. We were talking. We were talking about God's sovereign sense of humor. And I told him, you know, I said, when I trusted Christ my Savior, I said, God, I'll do anything you want, but I'm not going to be a pastor and I'm not going to Christian college. I don't know if you are here last week when I gave the surrender illustration. That's not it, just so you know. And so I am a pastor, if you didn't know that. I went to a Christian college. My reason for going, because I wanted to find a Christian woman. I figured the odds were better there in doing that. And it worked, but God did another work while I was there too. I also told him that we weren't going to plant a church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And then one of the things I was thinking about as I was preparing this message was God's sovereign sense of humor that when we first came here, we, we met in people's living rooms and we'd talk and people would ask questions. What, what, how are you going to dress? What's the music style going to be like? And I was like, we didn't promise hardly anything because all that stuff can change. So we're going to preach the word every week. We're going to make a big deal about Jesus. That's what you can count on. And I said, and here's what I can promise. I'm going to promise we're not going to be a club for Christians. God's sovereign sense of humor. Some of you know this is part of our story. You know the first place we met as a, a group? at a country club in Briar Creek with about 40 Christians. So I'm going to be real careful today not to promise you many things of what God's going to do, but here's what I believe is going to happen because God is alive and he's active and he's working. And just like we saw a woman trust Christ when we had our first practice service here, I believe he's going to continue to save people at our church. He's going to continue to change lives and I believe he wants to change your life. And he's got you at this exact time, at this exact place for a reason. For you, the answer might be different what your next step looks like than it does for me or for the person next to you, but I know that he's got a next step for you. So what does he want to do? And you look at Esther and who she was and how unlikely it was that she would become queen. There's all these coincidences that happen in the book of Esther. One of the things I love about the book of Esther is that God's never mentioned. And so it makes you almost think, well, why, why is this book even in the Bible? And what I love that happens in the book of Esther is what you have here. It's not like Mary where an angel appears to Mary. It's not like Daniel where there's writing on the wall. There's not a voice from heaven. Instead, what God does is he piles up coincidence after coincidence after coincidence. It just happened. I was in the right place at the right time where it becomes obvious that while God's not a character, an actor in the story of Esther, he's the writer of the story. And that's how our lives most often work. Rarely does God, a voice from heaven, this is the church you should be at. This is the city you should live in. This is the person you should marry. Here's the job you should have. But he's sovereignly working. Sometimes it seems like behind the scenes. Sometimes it's overt. Those coincidences, it's his sovereignty to put you in the exact time, the exact place, and that's what he's done with Esther, this Jewish girl that gets here by denying her faith, by sleeping with a man who's not her husband, and the coincidences pile up, and we're not going to get to chapter 5 and chapter 6, but you start going through here, and remember that Mordecai didn't get rewarded? Read chapter 6, the sleepless night that the king has. What does he decide to read, and how does it happen, and why are people in these exact places, and how does God work? You'll have to read the whole book, but we're just going to focus in on a couple verses today. Verse 14, I don't need you, but I'm going to use you, Esther. 
You think about the circumstances that are happening. We didn't have time to read all of chapter four, but if you jump up and you read the first three verses, you've got this woman. She's living in all this comfort in this palace. She's got seven maids. She's got every luxury you can imagine. She's living in the palace of the king, all the best food. But there's a national tragedy, and she's unaware of it. Go ahead and look, if you've got your Bibles, the first three verses. And you see what's taking place there. And tragedy has this unique way of refocusing us, of getting our attention and even bringing people together. And I'll just read to you verse 3. In verse 3, it says what's happened. And she's living in the palace, and she's unaware. She doesn't even know this has happened. But the king sent this edict that all the people that are Jewish, you just kill all the Jews in 12 months. That's when it's going to happen. And it says this in verse 3. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting, weeping, and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And here we are. I don't think it's coincidence that the day that we'll launch at this new place that's 15 years ago that we had a terrible tragedy on our soil in America. Four terrorist attacks took place, simultaneously coordinated terrorist attacks. People were killing Americans simply because they were American. And I, some of you are young. I can tell just even looking on it, some of your faces, and so you don't remember this happening. But some of you, you may remember September 11, 2001. And me just saying that date, some of you know exactly where you were at at that moment. Some of you may have been in or close to New York City. Some of you, like me, were glued to the television. And you remember when you saw those planes fly into those two towers and you felt like, is that even, is that, did that really happen? It doesn't even seem real. But then the images, if you saw them, are burned into your mind of the gray smoke coming down the streets and people running out of the buildings. And remember, the heroes were the ones that ran into the buildings to try and help other people get out, the police officers and the firemen. And remember, we didn't see what was happening inside the building, but it was so terrible. There were people actually jumping to their death because whatever was happening in there was so bad. And I don't remember if you know what happened after, based on your age or what your experience was, but... Do you remember that all of a sudden it wasn't like Republicans and Democrats? We were like all Americans. That's what is happening here. These Jews, they're, all, they're a nation now. They're, Jew, they're just Jews. And they're weeping together and they're wailing together and they're mourning together. And I don't know if you went to church when that happened back at 9-11, September, or September 11, 2001. But I don't care what church you went to, it was full the next Sunday. Because tragedies have this way of reorienting us towards God. All of a sudden, things that we thought were important, all of a sudden, they're not quite as important anymore. And, and I'll tell you, tragedy is not what ruins a nation. It often has prosperity. It's comfort. And you miss what's actually happening, what the problems are that are actually taking place. And here you've got this woman, Esther, and she's living in the palace. She's got, just think, if you go back to chapter 2, ladies... She got to spend a whole year just getting ready for this one date with Xerxes. I don't know if any of y'all have ever kept your man waiting before getting ready. Some of you have. <laughs> 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. But 12 months? Like, I don't, I, I don't know what you have to fix in 12 months, but you can pluck everything and paint everything and tuck everything in 12 months. Okay, everybody's pretty if you got 12 months for one date. But you also read that she had seven maids. Think about that life for a minute. Now, don't get any ideas, ladies. I don't want emails from your husbands. Seven maids. She wasn't making her own lunch, by the way. She wasn't cleaning the house. She didn't have to schedule anything for the kids. 
if Esther wanted, if she's sitting there and she's thinking, I'd like a manicure. Maiden number three, please come over here. Manicure. That's her life. It's a life of comfort. But then she gets this news, in 12 months, you're going to die. I don't know if you've ever been given news like that, maybe cancer or something along those lines, or you know somebody that's like that, but can you imagine how that would reorient your life? What would all of a sudden matter? What if you knew you only had 12 months to live? And she does. And all of a sudden, things that weren't important to her are more important. And what's happening here is Mordecai is giving her a call to agree that God didn't just put you in this spot, Esther, to bless you. He didn't just put you into the palace. He didn't just give you seven maids. He didn't just give you this position. He didn't just give you these privileges for your sake. There's more than just your comfort. He's calling her to something more. And he can even use her worst decisions to put her in a place for her finest moment. The same is true for you. The same is true for me. And what if it's true that God wants something more for us than just prosperity? What if he wants something more for us than just that we have all of our dreams come true? And whatever those dreams might be, the perfect job, the perfect kids, the perfect look, the perfect car, the perfect whatever. What if, what if all that happens? Is there more? Talk to people who get it. And they wonder if there is. And God's saying here, I have put you here for more. And you think of the story of Illy that you saw before the message. That God adopted her into this family. She's got this wonderful family. She sees a picture of God adopting us. That he reconciled us to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. He picks us to be in his family and adopts us in. When we call upon Jesus to be our savior, we become part of his family. But why? Is it just so we can be loved? Is it just so we can feel good? Is it just so we can, that we can absorb all the blessings that come? And she talks about how she, you know, the meals would come. And she didn't know if there'd be another meal, so she'd hurry up. You think about it in our spiritual lives. How many of us, we're not sure if God's going to provide for us, so we hang on to what we got. Until we start to learn, oh, he's, he's my father. He's going to take care of me, and I can trust him, and then we start to grow. But some of you might remember, I shared Illy's story in a sermon, oh, I don't know, like two or three months ago, where she'd come up to me, we had a Discovering Southbridge, she came up to me afterwards, and she just wanted to tell me, we talk about in our church that we want everybody to have a one, like at least one person they're praying for would come to Christ. Everybody who's a believer in Jesus already, we want them to share the love of Jesus with others. And, and she said that she was on this train, and she met a 40-year-old guy and a 60-year-old lady, and they weren't her ones. But she knew that God had her at that exact moment, at that exact time, to share the love of Christ with those two people and led that 40-year-old guy and 6-year-old woman to Christ. Because her life wasn't just about her being blessed. It was about more than just that. And that's our hope for our church. And so when I challenge you to have a one, it's not just, hey, we've got to go get them. Like, you've got a neighbor out there, and they're going to hell. Get them. So I want, it's part of your sanctification process, part of your becoming more like Jesus, that you start to realize your life isn't just about you. That God has orchestrated your life in a divine way, in a sovereign way to bring you to the exact moment you're in. Some of you are in terrible moments right now. Some of you are at a great place in life right now. But God's orchestrated all of that for all of you to bring you to this exact place for what he has for you that he's going to put in front of you. And some of what he's put in front of you is your coworkers and your friends and your neighbors. When we first moved here, I remember hearing the statistic, there are over a million lost people in our city. Now, that was 10 years ago. I'm going to guess there's more people here now. There's over a million lost people in our city. And so my hope for you is just, I bet you live next door to some of them. Maybe God put you in your house next door to those people for a reason. So when you have a small group at your house, a Southbridge small group, Bible study, whatever you do, maybe you can invite your neighbor. And it's not just about us. And so then I get emails. I got an email this week from a gal talking about right place, right time. And 
And she told me she went to run errands with her husband. She said, I don't even like running errands with my husband. She said, he was going to get, I just want to get out of the house. She said, he's going to get the oil changed. I don't like doing that stuff. But I grabbed the dog, went to the oil change place. We're standing outside. This other couple comes walking up, starts petting our dog. We start talking to them. We realize we live five minutes away from each other. That our stories have a ton of parallels, but they don't know Jesus yet. And so there's some of our ones. I think that's, that's, that's life change. Because you realize your life isn't about you. That's the call here for her. For such a time as this, hey, listen, God doesn't need you. But he invites you in to be part of his plan. And he's going to do a work, whether you're part of it or not. But he's put you here for a reason. And so why has he put you where he's put you? And why has he put our church here at this time, at this moment, at this place, right now? And I can speculate. Like I can say, hey, we should be more missional with these teachers. And there's going to be teachers in this school. And we can start loving on them and see some of them come to Christ. And I can talk about students. You know, if we tutor, some of you should tutor the students. You've got unique skills and should do these things. But I don't know. What's God going to speak to your heart? He put... Esther in that exact spot, he's put you in your exact spot, he's put us as a church, and it's easy if you attend a church to be like, I hope our church does that, let me remind you of something, you are the church. The church isn't just this organization, like, oh, if they would help refugees, then I'd give money. No, 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 you want us to help refugees, find a refugee family and help them out. Because we've got a problem, and there's a problem here. Most vision comes out of a problem. There's a huge problem in our city, but let me tell you something, our biggest problem is not refugees, although there's refugees in our city, I don't know if you knew that. Our biggest problem is not human trafficking. If you read your worship program, you see we try to have an impact on the, the issue of human trafficking. If you didn't know, I-95 is a corridor for drug trafficking and human trafficking. It's not far from here. It happens in our city. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not that people are hungry. Our biggest problem is not that marriages are falling apart. Our biggest problem is not that there are people that would rather turn to a bottle of pills or Jack Daniels or pornographic picture on a computer screen than to the living God. Our problem is not that our idol worship. Our problem is not that there's abortions. Let's think about the abortions that are going to happen in Wake County this year. I don't know, but statistics say there'll be thousands of kids murdered in the name of women's rights. That's not our biggest problem. Because all of the, those problems are temporary. All those problems are going to fade away. The idols are going to go away. The hunger is going to go away. The orphan issue is going to go away. Human trafficking is going to go away. But there's an eternal issue. And the eternal issue is this. That we have a God whose wrath is coming against us because we're his enemy. Now, most people that you work with and your neighbors with, be like, God loves people. Everybody's good. And that's just not what the Bible says. We have an eternal problem. That we're separated from God. And the only way that we can be reconciled to him is through what his son did. Not by being a good person. Not by getting them to go to church. Not by getting them to stop swearing or stop having abortions. Or stop getting divorces. Or stop worshiping idols. No. It's by having them turn to the living God. And so what has to happen is that your life has to be so transformed by Jesus Christ. That you're not told an assignment to go tell somebody about Jesus. But that he's changed you in such a way you long for other people to experience that change. Like Illy. Like the young lady who emailed me that. Hey, this is what happened in my life. And so we saw them. And the reason why you saw them that way is because you saw what happened to you. And here Mordecai is confronting Esther with this. And he gives her these really two sentences that have the potential to change a nation. And I think about us as a church. And the vision that we had when we came here is that we wouldn't play church. That we wouldn't just be a religious ritualistic place where people come and they feel warmed and filled and they go out and have a better week. But the people will be transformed and they'd realize that God is real and that he makes a real difference in their everyday life, that he's relevant to what's happening, not just in this room, but in every room that you will go into, that even when you're running from him and even when you're sinning, he's ruling and overruling in your life, that he's providing, that he's a loving father, that he's continually taking you back, that he's continually guiding you forward, that he's doing all those things and that we'd live out Acts chapter two, that we'd care for one another in such a way we wouldn't play games with each other and just be high and goodbye at church. 
How are you? I'm gonna need, I got a prayer request. Pray for that. Good. And I'll, real quick. And then I'm done. That we can be intentional about relationships. That we get involved. We carry each other's burdens. We confront sin. We would love one another. That we care for one another. We'd forgive one another. And that God would work even in our worst sin. Because in our sin, it's so obvious that we're not, we're not self-sufficient. And it's our weakness that he's made known. And here you've got this woman through her adultery, her denial of her faith, she finds her in this situation. And Mordecai gives her these two sentences. One's a statement, one's a question. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. God doesn't need you, but he can use you. And then a question. And who knows? So you've come to royal position for such a time as this. I want to give you today... One statement, one question that could change for some of you the trajectory of your life. Here's the statement. God doesn't need you. He chooses to use you. Statement. Question. Will you step up? Will you step up? Walk by faith. And that will require courage. Because whenever somebody lives by faith, you know what it looks like? It looks like courage. Courage. And what's going to happen for Astronax is going to require incredible courage. And you can almost look at it like, wow, she's like warrior type courage. No, no, no. She's got a different type of courage than what you see when somebody's got bravado. That's not what the kind of courage she has. She has a faith-inspired courage that's based on the promises and the power of the living God. And for any of us to take the next step will require great courage for us. You look at what happens with Esther. And, and you've got to go back to verse 11 that I skipped earlier. In verse 11, and what she says is, all the king's officials and people, of the, this is why she can't do this. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. Here's the one law. Not section eight, para, whatever. No, one law that would be put to death. If you go to the king and he didn't ask for you, you'd be put to death. There's an exception to this. It's if he gives a pardon, he extends the gold scepter and spares life. But in, in case, Mordecai, you think that's what's going to happen, let me tell you about our marriage. 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. And you've got to understand that their relationship isn't like most of you that are married in your relationships. Like if I walk up, I'm like, Amy, you've got to tell James this message. Tell him after. The, and they go, and they go, Chris, you've got to tell Serena. I thought that video was so good. Here's the, here's the thing you've got to tell. Easy for you to get a message to your spouse. Maybe you get in the car together after church. If you don't, you probably end up having lunch at the same place. If you don't have lunch at the same place, you're going to see each other back at the house. If you don't see each other back at the house, at least you're probably going to lay down in the same bed at night. The king and the queen did not share the same bed unless the king summoned her. They didn't have meals together unless the king summoned her. He's got a harem of women. Maybe he's lost his interest. Maybe they had a fight. We don't know. But for 30 days, he hasn't called for her. So maybe she's not his favorite anymore. She's saying, I'm probably going to die if I do what you're telling me to do. It's going to require incredible courage. Then Mordecai gives those two sentences. He doesn't need you, he'll use you. And he put you at this exact place at this exact time for a reason. And then look at verses 15 and 16. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Verse 16. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Oh, she's coming back to her faith. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. Oh, so she's going to go public with her faith. She's going to tell the maids that she's a Jew too. 
when this is done, I will go to the king. And though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. What she's saying here are not words of fatalism. It's not, I'm going to die. She doesn't know what's going to happen, which is usually how faith works. We don't know what's going to happen. Think about uh, the, the Hebrew guys that are in Dan- the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar says to them, bow down, worship me, and say, we're not going to do it. So I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace. And they say to the king, our God can save us, but if he doesn't, we still won't bow down to you. You know what they're saying? If I perish, I perish. How about Thomas? Thomas in the New Testament always gets labeled as the doubter. He did what I think any of us would have done. It like made sense. Like, you guys all saw the wounds. I just want to see the wounds unless I see. But my favorite part about Thomas is in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, Jesus, he's going to go to Jerusalem. And all, of his other, all the other disciples say, if you go there, you're going to die. And Thomas says, let's go die with him. That's our guy. We're going with him. That's courage. Where does courage come from? You don't just muster it up. You're not just like machismo or bravado for biblical courage. It comes from the promises and the power of God. And so you go back to this passage of scripture and Mordecai, Mordecai says this statement. How does he know in verse 14, if you remain silent, relief will come from somewhere else? Because Bible scholars even argue about this and say, no, Esther was the only one. No one else had access to the king. No one else was in a position. No Jew could have gotten to the king. Well, let me tell you something. I don't know if you've read the Bible, but if God wanted to, he could have opened up heaven and spoke to Xerxes. He could have brought up another person. And here's how we know he would have, because in Genesis chapter 12, he promises his people aren't going to be wiped out. Not by Haman, not by Hitler, not by anybody. And that, you know why the enemy wants to destroy the Jews? Because that's where Jesus is going to come from, through that very line. And you want to see coincidences piling up? Read the book of Ruth and how God uses a famine to put two ladies together that eventually is going to bring David, who's eventually going to bring Jesus. And there's not that many women that are mentioned in the book of Matthew. What about Rahab, a prostitute? You don't think God can use your junk to bring his plan into fruition? He's got you the exact place he wants you at the exact time, and he had it here with her, but it's going to require courage. And you look at faith. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. You know how it starts? Read the end of Hebrews chapter 10. Don't shrink back. Don't lose courage. And then it's all these examples of people who stepped out by faith, which required courage, which are based on God's promises and his power. And you think about the promises we have. Just the Great Commission. Our mission as a church. Go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what does it say at the end? There's a promise. I'm with you. Lo, I am with you always, King James. I remember when we were planning this church, sitting in my living room in Dallas, Texas. My wife comes walking in, no people. We weren't even sure what the location was going to be. We were praying about the triangle. We actually originally thought we were going to plant the church in Chapel Hill because we did some demographic research. And I said, being a Yankee, I said, hey, if we're going to the Bible Belt, let's go to the hole in the Bible Belt, Chapel Hill. (laughs) They were the most liberal in all the statistics. But then God led us into North Raleigh. I remember my wife coming in and she said, I just read this story in Exodus chapter 33 and God's mad at Moses in the story and he tells Moses, go to the promised land and Moses says, we're not going unless you go. And God said, you go, I'm not going. I'm mad, I'll, I'll discipline you people. You're disobedient people, you're stiff-necked people. But then Moses says, unless you go, we don't want to go, show us your glory. Do you know what God does every time he changes a life? He's showing us his glory, that he is alive, that he's working We have his presence, and he promises it. In fact, he specifically promises to manifest it, his manifest presence. He'll demonstrate it when we live on mission for him. 
And we have this power. If there was a verse that is the verse that's like a slogan verse for our church, it's Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who's able to do more than we could ask or imagine, most people know that part. According to his power that's at work within you. And so it's not this organization that has the power. It's every individual that he's then empowered as he's done a life change, done a transformation. You've got the promises. You've got the power. The question is, what's the next step? And you have to answer that question. I can't answer that question for you. But here's what I know God's plan is, that he wants to work through Christians to then make a difference. And our goal when we moved here was to see a city transformed, not to see a school filled up. Our biggest problems, not human trafficking, not, you know, orphan care. It's not any of that. It's that people are dying and going to hell. Our biggest problems aren't figuring out how to do lighting better in here or tear down or any of that stuff. We do that so that people can encounter the living God. So you can encounter the living God. So then the you, as you're sent out, can make a difference where you live, where you work, where you play, the kids that you have, the people you work with, the neighbors that you have. Most of you aren't Billy Graham. You're not going to preach to a million people. But there's at least a million lost people in our city. I bet you one of them lives next door to you. Most of you aren't going to change the Syrian refugee crisis, but... I bet you could make a difference in one refugee family's life. See, God didn't call us each individually to change the whole world. We've got about eight or 900 people that'll be here today. He had 12 in the book of Acts. He can change the world through you. The question is, what's the next step for you? Some of you, you're going to get a booklet on your way out. You'll see some statistics on our church. And 90 some percent of you are, are praying for one person to come to Christ this year. But then only 30% of us have actually shared the gospel in the last month. For some of you, the next step of faith for you is to verbally share the gospel. For some of you, it's to trust Christ as your Savior. For some of you, it's to come out of the shadows with your sin that's been holding you back and confess that sin. Can trust God enough that he's going to place a believer in your life that can handle what you're going to say. That's not going to look at you like you're an alien with two heads on because you did some sin that maybe they might even say, I've done that. Trust that that God can work in your spouse's life enough to forgive you. You trust that God can work in this church's enough life enough to realize that we're all broken and messed up. For some of you, your next step of faith is to deal with your pride, with your anger. What is it for you? God's got you this exact moment for this exact time for a reason. The same way that he held that couple for 30 minutes in an elevator so they would come walking out of that building at that exact moment to save that three-year-old kid. He's got a plan for you. It's about more than you, though. Do you see it? Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence. We are grateful that you are living and active. We're thankful that your word pierces our heart. We're thankful that you want to do beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. And I pray that your power would be at work in our hearts. I pray if there's any here that don't know you as Savior, that you'd convict them of their sin and have them call upon your son, Jesus Christ, who dealt with our greatest problem at the cross. I pray for our community right now. I pray for those that aren't in this building that they would end up being grateful that we are here, that we exist, because we're not just a bunch of cars that park in a parking lot or make some noise on Sunday morning, but that we're people that make a difference in our community. I pray for the coworkers of everybody here who has a job, that they would say to themselves, I don't go to church, but if I did, I'd go to that person's church because you've so changed them. God, I pray for our business owners, that they would lead and, and, and guide in a way where people see your fatherly love. I pray for our mothers that are here, that they would care for their children and realize those children aren't just annoying or a nuisance or little cute things, but they're your mission. And God, I pray for each one of us as we see our neighbors and 
different folks today that you would open our eyes, that you've got more than just a plan of comfort and prosperity for us, and that we wouldn't be lulled to sleep by the American dream, but that you would see the, that we would see your mission, that you would reveal it, that you would show us. And God, it might mean difficulty, it might mean pain, it might mean tragedy for some of us, but we know that you're sovereign and ruling even in that. For some of us, we might, not, we might run, we might not come back to this place, we might turn our back on you and run from you and church and Christians and be mad at all that stuff but you can even overrule in that and I pray you would and you'd be glorified guide us God show us what to do and don't let us not do anything about it have us say it share it with somebody become accountable and take steps of action in Jesus name I pray